House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. We're back in the House of a Mystery, and I'm at the controls, Al Warren, and in downtown Boston, we've got our reporter, David <laughs> North Martino, and he's standing on the streets at the courthouse. Man on the street interview. Yeah. Well, there we go. Well, you know, even more exciting than anything David can tell you, we've got the <laughs> the swashbuckling uh, author of several books, and I believe he's Canadian, eh? Um, so, joining us uh, on the line, we've got Sebastian de Castell. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Yeah. By the way, David, it doesn't sound... I, you just, I only just discovered that... David's in Boston, and having watched plenty of television, he doesn't sound like he's from Boston at all. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, could, we couldn't find a real Boston accent there, so yeah. that's, that's the best we could get. You know. <laughs> that's short notice, you know. He takes light pay, and he, and he brings good muffins. <laughs> Boston. <laughs> So, wow, that so, was the worst impersonation. That's horrible. That's horrible. Gonna say, you know, as someone that lives there, and well, yeah, I can't even do it. Well, and and actually, you don't sound very Canadian. Hey, what's all this at boot? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> now we're back in there. Now we're back in there. Um, so, how did uh, Sebastian become a writer? Like, where did this come from for you? Like, uh, there must have been a point when you said. I can write, and felt brave enough to do that and actually send it off to a publisher. So when did that start? Well, there were lots of points where I said, I can write. There weren't that many points where anyone else said I could write. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess, so in, in uh, so I, I wasn't one of those people who, who wrote all the time as a kid or anything like that. I, I meet tons of really terrific authors who will, you know, sort of talk about the burning drive to write and and the uncontrollable, you know, need, and it's like air for them. And I'm always like, well, I like the money, and the fame's all right. Um, but no, for me, it was it was in it was in 1997. I was working as a full time musician in a cover band, playing Brown Eyed Girl three times a week, and being sued by the bass player of the band for control over this cover band, in which I was making like 250 bucks a weekend, um, you know, living on on next to nothing. Um, and so when you hit that type of rock bottom, uh, you, you know, I, I was really looking for sort of a, a sense of creative control again over some part of my life. And, um, and so I, I did what I often do, which is I, you know, I went to the Vancouver Public Library, which is where you go when you have no idea what to do with your life, you know, an infinite number of possibilities and no judgment. And I found a set of um, 24 book tapes by a guy named Ralph McInerney, who is an author uh, and a Catholic theologian, oddly enough. Um, but it was called Let's Write a Mystery. And it was this weird set of tapes, cassette tapes, and you put it in your tape player, and, and he would talk to you about writing a book uh, in a 1960s science professor sort of voice. And then uh, along the way, he was writing his own book, and he included the manuscript of that book that he was writing as you were writing your book in this box that, that had the tapes in it. And um, it was pretty much the worst book I'd ever read in my life. And uh, 
but but the thing was that was to me the the greatest act of generosity uh, any professional writer has ever made because this was a guy who who'd had at that point I think twenty published books they were all you know he's very well regarded I think there was a TV series from his books and he was willing to kind of expose the fact that one of his first drafts could be so you know would read like something any of us would write and so that kind of unlocked it for me and that allowed me to to write my first novel, which was an absolutely terrible mystery novel called Skeletons in the Cloister. My first agent, by the way, insisted she could sell the book. And I said, yeah, but the book's terrible. And she said, yeah, but that's a great title, um, <laughs> which sort of tells you a little bit about how the publishing industry works. And um, so then, so then, you know, I was just totally satisfied. It had kind of changed my life in the sense that I felt like I could take on big things. And I started getting promoted faster. It's why I think everyone should write a book. Um, and then a few years later, I decided, you know, what the hell, I'll do it again. And I sat down and write, wrote um, did the, what's called the three-day novel writing contest, which happens every year. And I had no idea even what I was going to write. Um, and it's not like I stayed up for three days. I, I slept better than I usually sleep. I had a music gig. I had to learn how to sing The Lady in Red. And I went on a bunch of runs during that time uh, for my breaks. And somehow I wrote like 44,000 words, which is, you know, a lot to write in three days. That's about, that meant I was writing almost at the speed I could type. And um, a few years later, I decided, uh, you know, to, to sort of make a, a serious effort. And I took that book, and I, it kind of more than doubled in length. And that became Trader's Blade, which uh, got me my first four-book deal and launched my career as a novelist. Wow. Uh, but within yourself, um, did, did you ever have a problem with confidence? Um, in in your writing, did you ever um, think that it might not be good enough? Yeah, that that did happen. I mean, I remember it well because it was this morning, and uh, <laughs> it was it was also yesterday morning, and um, and it was the morning before that too. Yeah, confidence confidence is is a kind of is a bit of a shell game, I think, for a writer because. Um, you really have no idea what's underneath, right? You know that, I mean, it's a pretty, you, you know that somewhere under one of these shells is is something worth saying, um, but you're never quite sure which. And so, yeah, finding, it's it's hard to find confidence, I, I, I find. I think what you have to do is make peace with uh, a lack of confidence. and it's And it's in finding that peace that you, kind of sit down and then go, I'm about to write something and it may be that nobody ever likes it. And it, it may be that it's, that I don't even like it. And then you just sort of let it out. And, and then, you know, some of those, some of those words are really great and some aren't. And you just kind of navigate your way through it. So for me internally, uh, the, the nice thing that comes with experience, because, um, you know, Way of the Argosy is my 11th novel now. And I, I've been published in, I don't know, 15 languages. Um, and so I've been really lucky with my career, and I still constantly struggle with all the same things as any of your listeners who've never tried to write a novel you know, or who've sat down and, and struggled with their confidence. I, I wrestle with those things all the time. The only difference with experience is that you have that reminder that you know you felt that way before and you got through it. It's kind of like you know people who feel like they could never run a marathon. The only difference between someone who's run a marathon is that they – they at least know they can do it because they've done it once. But, you know, you still feel those same anxieties. 
Yeah, but I think that imposter syndrome will stay with you forever. Personally, I do. Um, but there, there's also a kind of a security um, in the sense that every time you write a book, um, I find for myself anyway, you have to put a little bit of yourself into that for sure. And, and with that, you're exposing part of who you are, like your feelings, your insecurities, um, things like that. So that's kind of the part that you have to be particularly brave in order to do that. And uh, especially with these days, you know, so much social media, so many people can get uh, in contact with you. So many people can put out there and, and it, you know, talk about you and, and a lot of people see it. So um, how do you deal with that? Well, I think it helps to remember. So there's two sides of that, right? There's the internal side, which is, you know, me telling myself that I'm terrible. Um, and that, you know, the way that I overcome it is I try to separate the author from the book. So there's, you know, there's an old literary theory, right, called reader reception theory. And, and basically that posits that the story only exists between the reader and the text, that once the author's written it, the author is effectively dead. Um, they don't, it doesn't matter. All the, all the stuff you learned in high school about um, you know, trying to figure out the intent of the author is irrelevant because the author's intent it doesn't matter anymore. It's what the reader reads into the story. Um, and so I find that that's actually reassuring for me because if I just think about the book and, and I just think about could this sentence be better, could this paragraph be better, this scene, this chapter, this, this entire story, you know, what, where can I search for things that will, that will make this a better story, um, then that kind of keeps me and my ego out of it a little bit. Um, the second side of it is what you're saying about social media, which is, you know, which is frankly a, um, a double-edged sword that, that everyone, whether they're writers or just regular people or, you know, God help them, poor kids in high school who have to really suffer under it, um, you know, have to struggle with, right? Because it's very, it's, it happens to be a medium that is incredibly effective for making people feel bad. Um, and the thing there is I just try to remind myself that, most people, when they say something about a book, um, are saying something about something else in their life. You know, it's even even with a movie, someone will say, when someone says, I didn't like this movie, right? They'll say, you know, whatever it is, Justice League. Oh, I hated this movie, it was stupid. Um, that's just that I'm expressing their opinion. When someone says, Justice League was the most awful thing that ever happened to cinema, and the people that made it are pigs, and they disgust me, and they're horrible, and I wish my mom had liked me better, and why does my bicycle not work? You know, like... They're usually communicating, they're usually sort of expressing pain and channeling it through something else. And, and in the case of book reviews, it happens to be a place where when somebody really doesn't like something, they, or where, where, where the, when the book review gets especially long and especially vitriolic, um, I, I try to remind myself that nobody really does that for a boring story, right? Sure. They, they, they're doing that because... There's something else going on, and, and we should view that with a certain amount of compassion and remember that one of the promises that the Internet makes and social media makes to individuals is here's a place where you can express your feelings, and that's kind of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, so, Dave, so why didn't you like that movie? <laughs> <laughs> What's well, Dave? You know. <laughs> You're talking about um, uh, yeah, Kong you, versus Godzilla. That's, that's right. <laughs> I hated that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
He's he's got a lot of counseling. I got tons of issues. Yeah. You know what I'd really like to see that I, I don't think I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but um, you know they they often capture people. Uh, they do you know they do all those test screenings and things like that. And, and there's the services that will capture people's impressions of movies as they leave theaters. What I really want is for someone to capture those, but also ask people a whole bunch of other separate questions, like, you know, were you bullied as a kid in high school? Did you have fun? <laughs> not, not because I want to make fun of people, but, but literally because I'm really curious as to whether there's all these, you know, certain types of movies, like, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla, where, you know, where in actual fact you can find these interesting demographic patterns or, or psychographic patterns where, you know, someone who has experienced this in their life will have this reaction to it. Because um, it would not, because there's the ones where it's really obvious, where people are, are let's say, triggered because uh, some, a movie depicts or a book depicts uh, a traumatic experience that they have associations with. But I, I want to know about it for like the really odd stuff. Like, you know, like someone can't stand. Um, when Harry met Sally, and like that, that, is, that a high proportion of people who can't stand when Harry met Sally also experienced like traumatic falls in bodies of water as children. <laughs> well, you know, but you take that seriously. So, you know, if someone's commenting, um, do you follow those kind of reviews, like good and bad, or is, is that is that important to you? Yeah, I follow. I, I look at. I mean. Look, you know, you know this. Every writer is told, "Don't read your reviews." Uh, there's great explanations for why it actually doesn't help anything. Um, Dean Wesley Smith, who's a, a, you know, I always find a really helpful person to to look at in terms of how he responds to the modern world of publishing, because he's been around for a million years and um, and he's pretty crotchety, um, but he's but he's smart. You know, uh, and he sort of says the most dangerous ones are the positive reviews. Like that, there's 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 nothing in a review. That, everything in a review is meant for a reader. None of it's meant for a writer. And and there's nothing in a review that's going to help a writer. I'm not sure I fully agree with that because there's times where people make insights about specifically about how a story affects them that then makes you think, oh, that's some really interesting territory to explore. Like when I first wrote the, the Spellsinger books, which is a six-book uh, six YA fantasy, um, and it's sort of about magic, but it's, it's, but it's sort of also against magic and, and our, our desire for magic and all those things. And, um, you know, uh, and there's these characters in it called the Argosi who are kind of like the Jedi without magic. So it's, I, n I never liked the Jedi because the Jedi always seem like they're about you have to be born with special powers and you have to be attuned to the Force and... The Argosi are all about, like, all the amazing things human beings can do. So there's these sort of wandering kind of cowboy monks, um, you know, who, who, who gamble and sing and dance and all of that. But they kind of take those basic human talents to, to, to their extremes, and so they can do kind of wonderful things. And I would often get people writing me about, when they, when they read about that, even though the, the main character, Kellen, is, isn't himself an Argosi in the first couple of books, um, but people would write to me and they'd be like, I need to know more about the Argosi. Like, I've never found a, a path for myself in the world. And, and all of this Argosi stuff, that sounds like so resonant to me and I want to know about it. And so sometimes those kind of things, when people, when you see, when you get to see readers' reactions to a story, they will make you realize that there's this other terrain out there that you've left unexplored or only partly explored. Um, and that can be really inspiring. So that's, that'll tend to be the reason why I'll, 
I'll look at reviews. When someone really hates, like I say, for me, it's easy. Um, when, when someone says, this book was okay, you know, that'll deflate me a little bit. When someone says, this book was the most horrible thing to ever happen to literature since the advent of Mein Kampf, um, then I'm, I, I usually find it modestly entertaining to read, and it yeah. doesn't bug me. But, you, you know, you can always comment back and say, well, you know, I don't go to your work and slap the sailor cock out of your mouth. <laughs> I, I, you know. I think listeners should be aware that right before the show started, <laughs> Alan said to me, no swearing on our show. No swearing. Well, I, I know what words I can say. And, and, you know, the listeners for 10 years have stayed with me because of my, my grammar. I just, think there's, I just think there's so much to unpack in that joke. Uh, but I don't at all feel qualified. I do want to urge you to, to sort of seek out someone with qualifications that you could talk to about that. But, um, um, but no, hey, here is one golden rule that all writers absolutely must follow. Do not comment on negative reviews. Um, understand where, what is writer space and what is reader space. And, you know, so, so I try to be active on Goodreads um, in the sense that I, I, I my, my approach to social media is I respond to everything somebody sort of asks me or tags me with, or I prefer that they reach me through my website because there's an email and I'm, and I'm more of an email person. But I'll always respond to stuff when someone says, hey, why did you do this or what's this about? Or even when they say, like, you know, your book sucks and I hate you. Why do you suck so bad? And I'll write, oh, I suck so bad because, yeah. you know, these all these experiences in my life made me terrible. Thank you for pointing it out publicly. Um, but 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 I'll never you know respond to a negative review. In fact, it's it's almost the reverse that sometimes happens now. Like that's one of the weird things about being an author is sometimes someone will post a review uh, that is negative, and people who really like your books will feel like they'll feel like they they owe it to you to kind of go after that person on social media. And that's the one time where an author will sometimes have to go in and say, "Look, everybody." It's a perfectly valid opinion about the book. Leave this person alone. Um, that happened to me a, a year or two ago, and it was—it wasn't even a negative review. It was—it was someone who had given the book four stars. She was a very intelligent reviewer. There were things about the book that she didn't like, um, but it, but they happen to be things that are that that are explained or, or become more apparent in the rest of the series. And so some people started kind of started snarking at her online. Um, and I'm always leery about jumping in to play the, the hero um, because I'm pretty bad at it. But, um, but, I, but that was one of the few occasions where I would have to respond say, to say, I literally went to the review and, and wrote, you know, this is a really interesting take on the story. I'm really glad I read this, you know. But by and large, yeah, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest the, 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 uh, the uh, I don't come to your work and, and uh, I don't know that that comment bears repeating exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna, but but no, don't do that. So basically, I guess what I'm saying, listeners, is don't do what Alan tells you. I don't know how often he tells you to do these things. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, on a on a positive aspect of um, the internet, social media, what have you, I was looking up uh, um, fantasy books that included realistic sword fighting, and mm -hmm. your name came up. And um, it was like in a Reddit post or something like that. And uh, I found it interesting because, you know, I tend to um, put my – I have some training in, in Japanese and Korean sword, and I tend to put it into some of my, my, my fantasy stories or other stories. 
And uh, I know you've worked as a like a fight cho uh, choreographer, and I believe you've done some fencing. And I guess I'm just you know wondering how you use that training to you know create realistic sword fights in your stories, and uh, how how you go about uh, constructing um, a fight scene. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, first, I, I really think the record should reflect that David went through a lot of convolutions just to introduce the fact that he used yes. to do Japanese and Korean sword fighting. Yes, I uh, <laughs> so. well, I was just trying to relate it to. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, so, I used, so I used to fence quite a bit um, years ago, and, and I worked as a fight choreographer for theater for a while, which was, which I think is more helpful in terms of, of learning how to tell stories with, with violence rather than, let's say, more accurately depicting violence. A good okay. friend of mine uh, by the name of Miles Cameron uh, is, writes wonderful, you know, battle scenes and things like that. And, um, but unlike me, he is actually kind of an expert on the sword. Um, there's way too many authors, by the way, who are experts on the sword. Can we all just stop that and everybody just like <laughs> become become experts in like rotary dial telephones? Like, I want let's see some super accurate rotary dial telephone scenes. Because um, because I felt like I had something when when I first when I first got published. Like, you know, there's an act of synecdoche that happens to all authors where. You know, whatever one thing about you is vaguely interesting, your publicist will sort of make it all about you. So all of a sudden, I became sword guy. Um, but there's way too many sword guys out there for me to, or, or sword women for me to be uh, put, pitch myself as, as qualified. But but what I did find was was that um, was that learning choreographing sword fights uh, for the theater is interesting because there's often no dialogue um, or, or very little dialogue in a fight scene. Um, and there are times when I'd work with a director, a theater director, who would go, right, okay, uh, act three, uh, here's the part, okay, Romeo and Paris, you know, from Romeo and Juliet, uh, and they're going through the script, and there's these wonderful lines, and then Shakespeare just puts in, they fight, which is the only reference there is. And, and the director would go, okay, uh, fight director, yeah, you, you take care of this, I'm, I'm going and they would just sort of leave. Um, and as long as you didn't introduce dialogue into the scene, they wouldn't really sort of care so much. Um, and that's a reflection of the fact that for both for, I think it's less true now than it was then, but, but that for a lot of directors and for a lot of readers, um, once the fight starts, the story stops. Um, you know, you just, you just go into some kind of flashy fight scene or some kind of terribly authentic fight scene or whatever, um, but the characterization, the, the story development, the themes all stop. And, and choreographing sword fights for the theater taught me that if I wanted the story to keep going, I had to imbue story into the way that these characters fought. I had to, I had to take their character, who they were, what they, what they believed in, what they didn't believe in, their fears, and I had to try to imbue that into the movements, into the way that they chose to fight each other. And I had to look at the themes that were apparent in the story elsewhere and go, how do you, how do you find you know, a trace of this theme, if possible, or, or at least threads of it so you're not severing the story? Um, and that's what I learned from it, far more so than, 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 let's say, tremendous accuracy, because even amongst that whole, the whole sort of recreationist community, um, there's, a, there's a tendency to feel like we know, you know, how people fought and what they did, 
and, I, and I'm not always convinced that's true because, you know, when I used to fence, I could afford to be as you can if you're fencing, you can afford to be as aggressive as you want because the whole the equipment you're using, the mask, the protective gear, the rules, they're all designed to protect you from harm. Um, but if you're you know if you're sort of out there and one wrong move means you get a sword in the eye, that's going to change everything about about how you fight. So for me, it's less about actually and it's more about story, and that that was what I really learned from those experiences. Yeah, and and I I'm not a fencer, so there you go. I can be offensive, <laughs> and <laughs> you know. But uh, there you go. Uh, fantasy. Um, wh- what do you think of the fantasy writers? And fan- you're obviously a fantasy writer yourself, isn't that what you call yourself? Uh, I I I do. Uh, so I write fantasies and I write mysteries. Uh, my mysteries are sufficiently bad that uh, it's safer to call me a fantasy writer. But I, I, kinda, but I love mystery, uh, or, or I'm often drawn to it for, the same, in, in similar, for similar types of reasons as fantasy. Um, but, but, you know, I, uh, my, my 11 published books are, are, are all fantasy, and, and, and barring uh, Ellery Queen and, uh, and uh, Alfred Hitchcock magazine actually publishing the stories I sent them last week, uh, I, I wow. suppose I should remain a fantasy writer. Mm. Well, what what is it? What does make a good fantasy? What to you is a good fantasy? For me personally, the the way that I view writing in general is, I see myself as a servant of drama, right? So, so all I really care about is drama. I'm I'm looking for drama, and 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 what I mean by that is something that feels real, that feels emotionally resonant, that is arresting when you're reading it. You know, those, those times where you're reading a book. And you stop noticing the sentences, and then suddenly you're you're kind of almost nervous about turning the page about what's going to happen to these characters. That for me is drama, and that's what I'm always looking for um, in in any genre. What fantasy allows you to do, or or what it allows me to do, um, is it allows me to construct a world in which the themes I'm interested in exploring are manifest physically. So, for example, um, in the case of something like um, uh, the Great Coats, which is the swashbuckling fantasy series uh, for adults, that that was my first series. Um, in that series, magic is quite a, sort of a distant and cruel thing that people, most the average person, doesn't understand. Um, it, it's sort of like you know, people know there are cell phones. Few people know how cell phones work. Um, and and it seemed to me that if there was magic, it would be something that was only held by a few and was largely controlled by the rich. Um, and so I can construct a world in which that's the case. Um, with The Great Coats, uh, as a series, I was dealing with idealism. Um, the Great Coats was oddly, I mean, this is a terrible thing to admit publicly, but, but it was partly inspired, some aspects of it were partly inspired from the 2004 American election in which John Kerry was up against George W. Bush. And John Kerry, regardless of where someone might sit on the political spectrum, was a guy who volunteered to go to war and won his medals. And, you know, despite not being somebody who I think was supportive of, of, of that, that war. And somehow through that election, everything that happened ended up turning it to be that, like, George W. Bush was the brave soldier and John Kerry was like a lion coward. And so with the Great Coats, I was able to take that feeling, that kind of, uh, you know, weird feeling that that, that, that cognitive dissonance arose in me, and go, I'm going to write a world in which 
the very same group of people who were fighting all this time to restore the rule of law to this country but lost are, are reviled by the very same people they were trying to help. Um, so fantasy lets you do that. In the case of like the Spellslinger series, I wanted magic to be, I wanted to treat magic as, as a pretty violent thing. Um, you know, one of the problems with fantasy writers and readers is we all think magic's wonderful. Um, but we forget that most, most magic that you see, you know, you have to ask them, what would you do with it? Um, you know, in Harry Potter, you see people throwing fireballs around. Well, can you imagine what that would do to someone if you <laughs> threw your fireball at them? Or, or we think, well, you know, but I don't want that kind of magic. I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a rotten person. I, I want to, I just want to be able to turn invisible. Well, what are you going to do with that invisibility? You spy on the cheerleaders' locker room or the football players' locker room? Like, you know, that's a violation of people. Well, I just want to read minds. Well, that's horrible. You shouldn't read other people's minds. And even when we think about, no, no, my magic, the magic I want is all about, I want to be able to cause plants to grow faster. And it's like, well, we have genetically modified seeds, and, and those aren't always a good thing. So, so writing Spellslinger allows me to create a world in which I can explore those ideas and make them very physically present. And that's something that fantasy does that really no other genre lets you do. You talk about fantasy, then. You, you, do you have something you want people to get out of your books besides the story? I suppose I, I have things in my books that I want to get out of my books uh, and, that, and that that's why I write them. And when I'm lucky, uh, other people will get some of those things out of it too. There, there, are, there are basically four kinds of people who are going to read, who, four kinds of experiences that people seem to tend to have out of my books. And I suspect it's this way for lots of writers. Um, some people might hate it. They might be like, this is awful. I like Brandon Sanderson. This guy's not Brandon Sanderson. He sucks. Um, there are people who will go, eh, it's okay, it was fine, I'm glad I read it, I don't feel I need to go on with it, but if I needed some beach entertainment. There are people who love it because they're like, I just, I really love the story, I love the humor, I love all the friendship, I love the, the sword fights, I love, you know, wh whatever, the dialogue, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and, and that's terrific because those are the people that pay my, uh, you know, pay my salary, basically. Um, but then there's a fourth group of people, and those are the people who something that you're writing about hits them the same way that it hits you. And those are the people that I'll sometimes meet at conventions or who will write to me, and they're the ones who will say, I was, you know, I was crying all the way through this book uh, because of this. And, and, it's, and it's, it's funny because it's, uh, I, get a lot of, I get a lot of interesting emails from, from, from men who will say, because um, most, most of the readership for, for all literature is, is women, um, you know, men tend to stop reading from about age 12 on, and after age 40, a huge proportion of men will only read nonfiction. Um, that's just got to do with parts of how we're wired. It's not because we're stupid or anything. Uh, not that we're not stupid, but 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 I'll get a surprising number of men who, you know, I'm a 43 year old man, and I, you know, I just cried my eyes out in this book, and and I always take that as that. I, I always think, yeah, that you're who I wrote the book for, because you. You're not because I'm so great, but you tuned into the same thing I'm tuning into, and it's good to know there's someone else who feels that way about the world. Oh, characters. So how do you develop your characters? Where do they come from? I usually, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very main character focused. Um, and I tend to write, so in other words, um, other characters in a book often start out in the same way as a snowstorm. 
you know, why, why do you write a, you know, you've got to, you're writing about your main character who's, who's trying to get to a cabin 10 miles into the woods, you know, before nightfall. Why do you write a snowstorm? Well, to make it harder for that character to sort of add drama. I will tend to add other characters initially for that same reason, although who's a character who would make this character's life harder, whether it's a friend or foe? Um, you know, in the case of the Greatcoats, I really started from the standpoint of Falcio, who's this very, very idealistic, um, you know, the Greatcoats are, are basically sword-fighting magistrates. They're, they're built off of the 12th century uh, uh, English justices itinerant who were, you know, in the 12th century in England, they didn't have courts per se. Court meant literally the, the, the king's court. And the, you know, they would send out these judges who would walk these judicial circuits and appear in a town every six months and go, okay, who's got a case? And they'd hear the cases and, ju and judge them. That's, in fact, where the term circuit court comes from. Um, your own Abraham Lincoln was a, a lawyer who, who rode with a judge and another lawyer doing circuit court uh, trials. Um, in fact, there's, there's rumors that the judge involved, when they didn't need two lawyers, would sometimes go fishing instead and tell Abraham Lincoln to be the judge. Um, so I, I took that notion to, to sort of create uh, the Great Coats. Um, and so Falcio is this judge who, who really passionately believed in the idea of the Great Coats, and when it all sort of fell apart, you know, he, he's kind of filled with this sense of uncertainty. And I, and I was like, well, I want someone like that to constantly feel like a little bit less than. So I made his two best friends. One is sort of the greatest swordsman who's ever lived, who, who doesn't have any of these kind of doubts. Uh, and the other is, uh, is this amazing, is this archer who's also, you know, fabulously handsome and, and loves life and gets along with everybody. Um, because what that does is that makes Falcio's story more challenging. Um, and, and, and over time, those characters then evolve to have their own sort of personalities. But, but the, the short answer to your very reasonable question that I've, that I've expounded on far too long is I, I always sort of start with that, who's, who's my main character, and then how do I create other, how do I populate this world with other characters who are going to challenge the things that that character believes? Speaking of uh, creating characters, do you draw from your uh, acting training and experience when creating characters, especially the backstory? Um, boy, that would be great if that was true, eh? Um, <laughs> what are you saying? You have, to understand, you have to understand that I was a truly terrible actor. Uh, I was the kind of actor who thought, who got into it thinking, I can be really good at this. I'll do whatever the director wants. Uh, and that's actually not what acting is, right? Um, acting is... is, is interpreting a text to bring a character, to create a character. Um, it's one of the reasons why I absolutely adore, I adore getting to hear the audiobooks of my own books. It's, it's the only, not just because I get to hear some, you know, somebody with a really good voice read my story back to me, but because they kind of add all of these layers and nuances. Um, the audio, I'm just listening to the audiobook for Way of the Argosy right now, and uh, and the, the audiobook narrator, Kristen, is a, is a fabulous uh, actress. And um, she just did, uh, uh, Kristen's rather, and she's just done such an incredible job with that story that getting to listen to it, um, it's just like, it's, it's a whole other story. Um, so, yeah, so it would be great if I hadn't been such a crappy actor because that, that would sort of <laughs> influence my writing. But But I would say that, Mostly what it did was it left a, a, 
a feature film out there that's got my face on it that every once in a while someone sees and, and puts one star next to it. Well, <laughs> that's when you go tell them what I said to tell them, right? That's right. <laughs> yes, as an actor, you uh, yeah, you can do that because yeah. that never goes wrong, right? right. Right. People really encourage actors to express their feelings on social media. Uh, unless, of course, you're Sharon Osbourne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, Way of the Agosi, um, what is that? So it's the, um, so it's the first book in a new series. It's a, it's a young adult fantasy series. It's about um, a young refugee who is uh, sort of hunted and tormented by uh, mages. It's, you know, the, the, 300 years ago, there was a war between these two societies. One lost horribly. Um, and 300 years later, there's almost none of the, the, the her people, the Madek, left. But as far as the Jantep are concerned, the, the people who are sort of the mages in this world, um, they think of that war as ongoing. They they still feel that threat, even though there's there's not there's not very many Madek left. And so the the story about um, her and the and the torments that she undergoes, and, and then and her attempt to survive all that um, somehow. Uh, and, and she does that by sort of trying to adopt different kind of ways of living. She tries to be kind of a knight, and that when that doesn't work, she tries to be live as a thief. And when that fails, she tries to, um, you know, just be a drifter. And, um, and, 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 and along the way, she meets uh, a member of the Argosi, who are these sort of wandering kind of uh, cowboy philosophers, uh, who, who show her sort of a, a possible different path, but it's a path that requires giving up a lot of the things that are important to her, which includes her, her rightful anger at the people who have been sort of tormenting her. So it, it's, a, it's an adventure story, uh, but it's dealing a lot with, I think, the questions of, you know, what is the cost of, of wanting justice for yourself? Um, so, yeah, that's my pitch. Okay. Now, your the, the personality, where does the personality come from in your character, your main character? Are you getting that from someone you know, uh, some sort of influence? Well, it's interesting because the, the main character of the way of the Argosi is, is uh, Ferris Parfax, and she first appears uh, as a much older character in the Spellslinger books um, as this kind of completely rambunctious, kind of uh, daring devil may care sort of gambler um, who uh, who is based in part on uh, a lot of the uh, kind of a conglomerate of a lot of my sister's friends when I was um, when I was 16 so when I was Kellen's age and trying to figure out what the hell I was going to be in my life um, I was living with my sister because you know my dad had passed away when I was nine and my mom had you know very very advanced multiple sclerosis and so my sister was sort of stuck taking care of us. And, um, and she's a, you know, feminist scholar. And this is in the 80s. And um, so her, a lot of her friends were these, you know, uh, fellow sort of feminist activists. And, and they, were, they were so interesting to me because just as, as like a 16-year-old guy, um, because they would, they would come back from protests, for example, like with bruises. Like there'd be, there'd be you know, we, we often forget this stuff, but even in the 80s, there, was, there was like guys going around with baseball bats when there was a woman's march sometimes, right? Ready to sort of pummel people. 
And all these women were kind of amazing to me because they were so sort of daring. Like they, they kind of talked and walked a little bit like cowboys sometimes, right? Um, and so that really fascinated me uh, and, and, and the way that they were quite kind to me, even though, you know, in many ways, you know, I'm a cisgender, heterosexual, you know, 16-year-old dude. Um, you know, they were, you know, you, you'd sort of think they'd be like smack me over the head, like just telling me not, you know, not become a rapist. Um, but they were often both both compassionate to me and yet very fierce about what they what they believed in. And so that very much influenced the, the creation of Farius Parfax as she appears inside of Spellslinger. When it came to Way of the Argosi, I wanted to explore, like, how did she become the person she became? And, and what, how do you create that bridge between, you know, terrible childhood trauma and becoming someone who is so sort of vivacious about life and daring and, and compassionate and all those things. And so that's kind of where that character comes from for me. Mm. I would imagine with a fantasy like this and these char- this, this type of story, um, do you write your scene or your location as a character as well? I sometimes do. It's interesting because in the Spellslinger world, a lot of the action takes place in a, in a sort of frontier. Um, but it's a very odd frontier. It's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost as if the 17th century sort of America had been colonized by uh, ancient Egyptians and Romans and, and Moors and, and people like that from across the water. Um, and so there's lots of kind of melding of ideas and, and things like that. I try never to be very explicitly uh, creating cultural parallels because, you know, therein lies a great deal of danger. You can easily kind of negatively or poorly represent other people's cultures. Um, so I, I always try to sort of construct, uh, construct setting in terms of what reaction it's going to create in the in the main character, which I think is sort of what you're driving at. So, yeah, yeah. so in this third Spellslinger book, I wanted Kellen, who comes from a culture of mages, so he thinks that everything about them is, is superior, like is the most amazing thing, and he comes from the most amazing cities. And so I wanted to kind of create a, a country that he would visit where he would suddenly feel like, oh, my God, I've been a, a rube, my, uh, you know, a heck my whole life. Like, here's, this is what the big city looks like. And, and so I try to give places some of those characters, but the characteristics. But the, the trickiest part, both with characters and settings, is, is nuance, right? It's remembering that no individual person is all one thing, and therefore it's incredibly dangerous to try to represent a whole culture as a whole thing. And, and so it's the same way with, um, with a setting. So, for example, the Seven Sands, which is where Way the Argosy takes place, is this kind of very large desert um, in which there's – it's called the Seven Sands because different regions have different um, mineral composites in the, in the sand. So there's the ruby sand. So, you know, the sand is very reddish, or there's a place where the sand looks so – it looks almost blue – and it's very harsh and dangerous, but sometimes at, at night, you know, when all the stars are out, it will feel like the most magnificent place imaginable. And that's always one of the challenges for writers, um, just for anyone out there writing their books, is, is you have to write settings that are difficult and dangerous, um, but they also have to be places that the reader kind of wishes they could visit. Um, and so often that will inform it a little bit as well. It's, I try to create a setting that, whether it's um, whether it's pleasant or whether it's deadly, is a place that I kind of wish I could travel to. Hmm. Kind of like Chicago. 
<laughs> no, I've been to Chicago. Well, deadly, you know. But um, yes. wow. So, what do you think of your characters? And I ask this because out of, out of all the authors we talk to, we always ask them how they describe their characters and what they mean to them. So, some would say, "Well, they're like my children." Some will say, "They're you know." So, there's all sorts of. Things. Some some authors say that the 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 their characters tell them how to write the story and where they're going to go and all sorts of things. What's your association with your characters? Uh, yeah, I think uh, you know sometimes it feels like you're, like that's happening. I for whatever reason, for my own kind of process and sanity, I try not to divorce myself from the accountability for what I write. You know, if it's just my characters telling me what they're doing, then, well, it doesn't really, you know, then I'm not really responsible for whether my characters do something horrible that adversely impacts my readers. Um, so I, I try to always sort of take responsibility for it. I, I mean, you know, realistically, if, 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 or scientifically is the wrong word, but pragmatically, I suppose, we have to acknowledge that that where characters come from is a mixture of, our own experiences filtered through our subconscious, our, our anxieties, our fears, our desires, our, our you know, it, it's our experiences get funneled through all that kind of primal ooze, and then they sort of come out, and then our brains see this weird ooze, and then try to say, okay, what does that look like in words? So that's not a very um, aspirational way of putting it, but but that's that is what it's like for me. I I have to. Try to. I have to try to dig in the ooze, or I think of it as going into the dark cave. You know, your 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 mind and your experiences are like this very kind of dark cave, and most of the time you you try to stay out of it because there's a lot of kind of ugly, horrible things in there. Um, but sometimes when you need to draw on that kind of creative energy, the stuff that makes people paint and makes people write and makes people act, you you have to kind of go in there, um, and sometimes you have to go very deep. Uh, and, and, and then your intellect, you know, your sort of craft, if you will, like the writing craft will then shape some of those things and, and also take some of the edges off. Um, for me, it's more often the case that I will, I will often, my, the first thing I'll have a character say, do, or think will be the most extreme, horrible thing that I think I could do, right? Or, or that, that comes to mind. Like, you know how we, we have these very negative reactions. Like, you're on a bus, uh, you're very late for work, and an, and an old, shabby-looking person who smells of urine comes in and sits close to you, and your first reaction is this horrible thing, right? It's like you want to blame them, you want to, you know, whatever. And then, and then you've got, you know, your sort of superego comes in, you know, and, and sort of says, hey, you know, you don't know what's happening to these people. You don't know, you know, you have no business. You don't know their story. Um, and, it's, and it's that way with me in characters where, I, I let the character first be my worst, or my darkest or, or most id-driven reaction. Um, and then I will uh, kind of allow my, my sense of decency and compassion to sort of shape that a little bit, which is, you know, pretty important because otherwise you write characters that nobody can, you know, that everybody hates. Um, I have a real benefit in the case of the Spellslinger books, for example, where because the three primary characters in that, in that story kind of actually map pretty well to um, Freud's notion of the, the of the identity. Uh, not that anybody should promote Freud at this point, but um, uh, you know the the ego, the superego, and the id. 
So because Kellen is sort of the ego, he's sort of the conscious character. He's he's you know he's insecure about things. He's trying to figure out who he is and what to do in life and how to survive. And Farius is kind of like the superego that's sort of this reminder that there's a better way that you shouldn't you shouldn't do horrible things to people. Um, but there's also a talking squirrel cat uh, who's this kind of familiar, uh, who refers to himself as his business partner because he wouldn't be anybody's familiar or pet. Um, and the squirrel cat's reaction to everything is either, you know, involves either uh, killing it, eating it, or, or, or something sexual. Um, and so it's great because it means that I kind of have those three pieces. So, I can, so, I, so the, the great thing about writing a talking animal is they're allowed to say and do almost anything uh, that they can get away with, and people think it's endearing. Whereas if you had a human character say those things, you would, you know, your book would get pulled from the shelves. My Dr. Zeus. No. Uh, <laughs> web, website for you. Do you have a website that you'd like people to go and find you and send you love letters? I have a, I have a lovely website. I spend way too much time on my website. Um, but decastel.com, so D-E-C-A-S-T-E-L-L.com. Um, and, you know, all my books are there. Uh, all my books in other languages are there. Um, you can get a couple of free stories there, and if and if you want to want to write me, you can do it from there, uh, no problem. And um, yeah, and I, I'm always happy to hear from readers. I'm even occasionally happy to hear from people who aren't readers. Oh <laughs> boy, dangerous! Radio personalities. <laughs> yeah, never read in my life. I, yeah. um, I just wonder. So you know, with this last year, year and a half. Um, How's it been um, writing for you? Has has that any effect on you? Like all the, you know, the political stuff and the and the COVID and turmoil and everything in the U.S. Has that had any darkness in your writing? Uh, no, it it has changed some things for me. So um, so I live in in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, you know, and, and my wife and I own our house, and we have a wonderful relationship. Um, and so, you know, every access and privilege there is, I've kind of benefited from during the pandemic. We we have, relative to most places, we've had relatively low case numbers. That's not always true. It's still terrifying for a lot of people. But, you know, my wife and I are in good health, and her parents are very smart and very careful, and, and her sister is in good health, and, and uh, her niece. And so, you know, so we've just been really lucky. And as a writer, I was completely unfairly lucky, because I went into 2020, um, where I, because of the timing of books, 2020 was going to be the first year since I started writing that I didn't have a book come out. And I thought I had completely screwed up. Like January 1st, 2020 rolled around. I thought, man, I have messed this up so bad. I don't have a book come out this year. I'm not going, I haven't booked myself to go to any conventions or conferences, no book tours. I've screwed, I've really screwed up my career. So all I'm going to do this year is I'm just going to knuckle down and I'm going to write every single day of the year. And so that's how I started off. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and it turns out like, thank heavens, I don't have a book coming out this year because it would just be, it would be hellish, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I just got lucky. In, in, in every way that someone can get lucky. Um, so the pandemic didn't shape things for me that way. What's interesting, though, is I found, uh, and, I, and I, I'm always reticent to get into politics because, you, you know, there's always a risk to hurt somebody's feelings. But, um, but Play of Shadows, which is my book that comes out in the fall, which is, 
which is about a, uh, you know, interestingly enough, it's about, it's a swashbuckling fantasy novel about an actor who suddenly gets possessed by the spirit of the character that he plays on stage, who's a historical figure, like a, you know, a kind of like a Richard III kind of figure who basically, you know, reveals that the history that they all believe in was a complete lie and, and that there's this conspiracy going on. And he lives in this kind of world in the, in the system, the city and the society that's being taken over by a very, very, very ugly form of populism. Um, and I think you can probably see where this is going. Um, uh, and I, and so I, uh, um, you know, and so I apologize to those people for whom populism, the populism that we've seen in the United States over the last several years is something that feels really positive to them. Um, for someone like me, you know, I'm, I'm like an absolute old school classical liberal. I mean, I'm a Canadian, which means that politically I'm left in Stalin. Um, but, um, but, but what was interesting is the first, you know, that book is in its 10th draft, which I've never done before, which is a sign of just how troubled it is now. Um, but my early drafts of that book had an ending where, you know, the, it, it kind of, it all fails and it all falls apart and, you know, the, the, there's a reason to continue and go on, but, you know, it had kind of a darker ending. And as the American election was coming up, I just, I just noticed that like around the world, like the zeitgeist was like, no, we're not, we're not, we're not willing to lose again. You know, like that, that the last thing someone would want to read would be, regardless again of whether you, you stand on that sort of political side of it, the belief that, that, you know, even, you know, even people that, that want, that wanted President Trump to, to win again, it's not that they wanted to win through negative means. They just wanted to win because they believe in him. And so a book in which the sort of the worst thing that can happen happens because of sort of deceit and treachery was just not going to kind of, it didn't feel right anymore. And so I found myself changing the, the ending to this story, um, which is a very unusual thing. I've never had that before. Nobody was asking me to do it. Uh, it was just that all of a sudden I felt like the world in which the story was going to interact would no longer be the same one. It's, it's, it's like writing and you suddenly realize that the English language has evolved, has changed, and that your writing is going to be completely misinterpreted in, in the same way that, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever read like uh, Travis McGee, you know, the, uh, who wrote the Travis McGee books? Well, I, you know, I'm the radio personality. We don't read. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can't remember his name, <laughs> but it was the same for the Spencer books, Robert Robert B. Parker and stuff. These guys, you know, they wrote these wonderful, you know, amazing books. They're still amazing today, but but the way that we refer to different kinds of people has, has changed. And so those books, sometimes you read them, and, it, and you could very easily be confused as to what the author was trying to was was sort of what the characters were about and what they were saying and how they viewed women and how they viewed you know uh, sort of you know non straight dudes and, and things like that, uh, regardless of whether that's what the author meant. In other words, sort of the context changes. And so for me, I, that's what I found in 2020. And it was a very long-winded answer. I apologize. But it felt like the context for narrative kind of changed a little bit. And I don't know if I felt the change correctly. I don't know if I identified it correctly, but it definitely felt like the way that we want to see, the way that we understand certain kinds of stories about certain kinds of topics changed. Oh, yeah, 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 constant. Well, thank you very much. Our guest has been author and swashbuckling great actor, Sebastian DeCastell. <laughs> yeah, don't buy his books. Go watch his movies. Yeah. Don't do that, for God's sake. <laughs> 
To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs>